And it's Mick Collagio, and this is the third episode of Rink Wrap, the podcast. I write for the Standard Times in New Bedford, Mass. You can uh, read uh, my Bruins preview at southcoasttoday.com, and you can read my uh, game day blog uh, on opening day at blogs.southcoasttoday.com slash Bruins, and follow on Twitter at Mick Collagio. Today's guest is Mark Diver, uh, Providence journal bulletin hockey writer and a contemporary of mine so this is a particularly enjoyable conversation for me uh, because I, I love touching base with people who have experienced a game of hockey sort of the way I have over the years and have seen it evolve and change its shape and tempo and pace so many times um, Mark you've been through uh, obviously obviously a lot of uh, Boston Bruins training camps and uh, in these cuts these unkind cuts is this the most competitive one that you've seen uh, you know in the since the team has been in Providence yes yes it is uh, I, I thought it was a very uh, interesting and and compelling uh, camp uh, for the, the prospects uh, following the you know who would make it who wouldn't make it who was up who was down uh, I thought it was uh, very uh, very interesting as I said fun to follow uh, one of the things Bruce Cassidy uh, said along the way was is that some of these last cuts might have more to do with the fit than it does with reward or who's playing better out of the guys that are playing well. Uh, it depends on what you need and because uh, hockey's like soup. You have to make it work. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's uh, very true. And it's uh, just look at uh, the decision to keep Matt Grizzlick over Rob O'Gara. Uh, you know, Matt's the, uh, the closest to Tory Krug. He's not only the same size, but their games are very similar. Uh, you know, I'd venture to say that if uh, if Zidane Chara was out of the lineup, maybe Rob O'Gara would be playing tonight. Uh, it, like you say, it all depends on what you need, and and I think uh, I think that's what a lot of the decisions came down to. I think it became apparent that this was going to be one guy or the other once it got down to about three days before the season begins. And Paul Postma, who earlier in camp was switching over to the left side, which he has done somewhat in his career as a right shot. Uh, it was all surprising to all of us that the Bruins added another right shot defenseman. I mean, they already had a bevy of them. So, so when they once he was locked into that right side, and and it was either going to be O'Gara or Grizzlick, and they would have had to reinvent a lot of things if it was O'Gara. Yeah, they would have. He's not uh, he's not the same kind of player that uh, that Grizzly is. Uh, you know, he's got a long a long reach, uh, a, a long stick. Uh, not as offensive as Grizz. He's not a guy who's going to run the power play for you. Uh, he's a he's a stay-at-home D uh, who's made tremendous tremendous strides to my eyes over the last twelve months uh, as a pro. But uh, he's not uh, he's not in the mold of a Tory Krug. That's for sure. One of the things I neglected to mention when when I opened here was is that uh, you've got a new blog. And it's called RinksideRhodeIsland.com. Uh, tell me uh, a little bit about it. What you're doing with that? Well, this is kind of an outlet for me to uh, to write about hockey, uh, all aspects of hockey, from uh, the Bruins, Providence, and Boston down to the, the college teams, and even down uh, to midget and prep school hockey and and things like that. It's uh, you know, uh, it's a place for me to write things that would not get in the Providence Journal. Uh, 
so it, it kind of gives me an outlet, a, a way to uh, a way to uh, kind of just get things off my chest uh, if it comes down to it. And uh, so far, it's it's been a lot of fun. Venting the hockey mind. <laughs> yeah, in a manner of speaking, yes. <laughs> um, my first Rhode Island uh, high school hockey game was the 1987 state championship game, which was the end of a final series between Mount St. Charles and Bishop Hendrickson. Garth Snow was in the net for the Mount. Keith Carney was on the D. They had two Keith Carneys on their team. Yes, One right. of them wound up playing in the NHL. They were both drafted. They were both drafted. Okay. I didn't realize that. Um, and then, uh, uh, let's see, uh, David Emma and Robbie Gaudreau amongst uh, the elites playing uh, for the green and gold. Uh, that was a very high level of hockey. Um, later on, it was Brian Burrard. Um, I mean, after, I'm, I'm skipping right over Brian Lawton, but uh, I saw Burrard when he was a true freshman playing in the final uh, finals against Tollgate, which is the Warwick High School, yes. one of the Warwick, Warwick High Schools. And uh, the guys, were, the seniors were just trying to run him, and uh, he was just sort of brushing him off. It was impressive. Yeah, he was really uh, he was really something, and uh, you know, people started talking about him when he was a bantam. Uh, that, geez, you got to see this kid. Wait till you see this guy. You know, he's going to be the next great hockey player out of Rhode Island, and boy, he was. And you know, he had a, uh, you know, his pro career was kind of I don't want to say ruined, but certainly changed forever by that horrible eye injury. Uh, he was able to come back after that, but never reached the heights that, that he might have reached if, if that hadn't happened. It's hard playing a position like that at such an ambitious style of game with vision only on one side. To me, it's a miracle he didn't wind up getting seriously hurt when he, when he was doing this. Uh, he played for the Bruins that 2 3 season, and uh, part of it was really good for him, another part not so great, but to lean on a guy like that, and say, okay, you're going to be our guy. Um, it, it put him in a tough spot, and I thought he handled it as well as any human could possibly handle it. Just say, okay, go out and play defense in the NHL with one eye. Oh, and by the way, the first round of the playoffs against the New Jersey Devils, eventual champions. Yeah, you know, I saw Brian this uh, this summer, and he's you know he's adjusted well to his post hockey career. And uh, after talking with him for a while, I was. You know, I, it was great to see a guy who was not bitter about the hand he was dealt. He he rolled with it, and uh, you know he's doing very well now. I, I I think he's in the financial services business, but uh, well, he certainly took up the cause of some players who had been cheated yes. in a real estate scam, I believe, down the southwest. Yeah. And he was very much involved with that. Uh, I don't even know. I, I went one mammoth story I read about this once. I don't know what ever happened and how it came. But obviously, it, uh, he transitioned into a life after hockey that where he, you know a lot of players could use a guy like him. Yeah, for sure. I, I think uh, I think he uh, you know he's been where uh, where some of these kids uh, are going with their money, and you know he can he can certainly. You got to listen to a guy like that when it comes to uh, you know financial advice, what what to do, what not to do, and all of that. So I think he's a he's a he's a good resource for that. And now uh, some of these guys are getting that money younger and younger and younger. It, it's uh, one of the stranger things for me has been uh, when did the leverage change that a 
a group two player, second contract, you don't have arbitration rights, and yet those guys are now leveraging GMs into market level contracts, and it's hard to disassociate that uh, from the potential for a lockout, A, because there's no drag at that stage, and uh, B, because of the some of these contracts are uh, constructed heavily with bonuses, low annual average value, and while that doesn't lessen cap, it certainly um, lessens the ability to buy out. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, the, the thing that strikes me uh, with some of these contracts, you know, Jack Eichel this week, is uh, it, hockey's become just like all the other sports now. They give some of these young guys a pile of money before they've re really even proven anything. Uh, you know, in Jack's case, you know, the, the Sabres, uh, they haven't been very good. Uh, not that it's on all on his shoulders, but in the old it, days, it is now. <laughs> well, it is now. Yeah, in the old days, you know, you'd have to, you know, maybe have a playoff run or a first place finish or something like that, and then they give you the money. Now they give you the money, and uh, <laughs> you know, hopefully it works out for them. But uh, I don't know. It uh, it, it seems uh, it seems backwards to uh, to this old uh, this old guy. Okay, here comes the reset. We're on the uh, Rink Wrap, the podcast. I'm Mick Collagio, and I'm talking with Providence Journal hockey writer Mark Diver on opening night for the Boston Bruins, who will drop the puck um, in a little bit here, about two hours from now, against the Nashville Predators and uh, homegrown coach Peter LaViolette. Um, were you there uh, when, when Peter got the Providence Bruins job? I was a fan. I was not covering the uh, the team uh, in any way at that point, but I was a season ticket holder when they uh, when they won the the cup there in those those few years. And boy, those were uh, those were great days. I don't need to tell you. And uh, and and Peter was just a you could tell pretty much early on how good a coach he was going to be. One of the things that stunned me was is he uh, when they introduced him at uh, the pro at the Civic Center, now known as the Dunk, uh, as Providence Bruins head coach. Uh, I'm thinking, okay, they were just the worst team in the AHL. They were young. They were a lot of kids who weren't ready to play against men. And he gets up there and says, we have to win. And I'm thinking, what are you doing, buddy? You could just say my job is to develop players for the Boston Bruins, and hopefully we'll have some successes along the way because that's part of developing too. And, and then uh, you recall well what they did. Yeah, and you know that's uh, that's who he is. He he from the day one he was was driven to win. He he didn't uh, he didn't look at the roster and say, "Geez, you know, look what they stuck me with." Uh, <laughs> he uh, he figured out a way to do it, and and damned if they didn't uh, that year. Uh, you know, and he uh, I remember him you know bringing players in all the time uh, throughout that year. They were a first place team. They were rolling. And every couple of weeks, a new guy would come in. And, you know, I got to think that it made the other guys a little bit nervous. Kind of like the Herb Brooks thing? Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, even in the playoffs, they brought in that that uh, that guy, John Spoltori, up from the East Coast League. And, geez, I think he got overtime goals in two straight games or three out of four or something like that. And, you know, here's a guy up from the coast on a PTO, and they stuck him right in there in, in the playoffs, and it worked. The next season, um, the P Bruins probably were barely over 500, but they got back to the Eastern Conference Final and uh, lost in Game 7 overtime at Hartford yeah. 
um, on a um, the funny deflection off one of the Ferraro brothers' skates yeah. and under Johnny Graham uh, by Terry Virtue, their guy from the prior year. Right. Uh, the fact that he got that team that close when they had uh, the year before, I think they set the record for wins. Yeah. Okay, this year, I think they must have been pretty close to the record for man games lost. Yes. They had a flu bug. They had injuries. You name it, they had it. And somehow it winds up being uh, game seven overtime. I thought he deserved it more that year. And I'm always, I always bummed me out that the coaches don't get more consideration for the miracles they pull off rather than the spectacular seasons. Whereas Lavi has said, in order to win a championship, there's about 10,000 things that could go wrong that need to go right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he, uh, yeah, one of the, uh, one of the big mistakes in, uh, in Boston Bruins history over the last 20 years or so was them not hiring him to be, uh, to be the head coach in Boston. That was hindsight's 2020, of course, but boy, that, that turned out in, to my eyes to be a major blunder. Uh, who knows what he might have been able to do uh, with, you know, some of the guys they had in Boston at that point. I, I know that it, his family was completely broken when they knew that Mike O'Connell was going to hire Robbie Fatorik in 2001. Um, and that day, Mike Milbury called Peter and, and, and said, I want you to coach the Islanders. And and he's like, thank God, he said, because uh, everybody, his whole family, extended family, were destroyed by this. He actually said that it bothered him more that he didn't get promoted when they fired Pat Burns. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that was, um, uh, I could see what, it was Harry Sinden's last uh, will and testament as GM of the Bruins before handing over the keys that if he liked the way a team played or the way a coach got a team to play, he didn't care what the guy did before him. Just like Brian Sutter with the Blues when Rick Bonus had just swept the Canadians. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, you know, Robbie Fatorik, you know, he's he's had a, a long uh, and, I guess, checkered history as a coach in the NHL. But I'll tell you one thing. Kevin Dean, the uh, assistant coach now with, uh, with the Bruins, told me last year that Robbie Fatorik was the best coach he ever played for. And he played for Jacques Lemaire. He played for a lot of guys. Ken Hitchcock. He said Robbie was the best uh, when he played for him in in uh, in Albany. So, you know, Robbie. Uh, it didn't work out that well for Robbie in Boston, but you know, he he was a heck of a coach too. You know, what's funny is uh, that first year, a one o two, the Bruins are first in the conference, second in the league to Detroit. Um, they don't get past Montreal, which just had a style that was a bad match for them. A lot of speed versus their lumbering size. Um, the next year, they were the eight. Uh, they had let Garin, Bill Garin and Byron Defoe go in free agency. And um, what they had to come back with was sort of a patchwork situation. And, and to no surprise, they weren't able to match what they did. Um, and, and then that really crazy ending to Fatorik's tenure, uh, which was reminiscent of what, what had <laughs> happened in the Stanley Cup year for Jersey in 2000. Was it 2000? Yeah, I guess it was 2000, yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's uh, a lot of peculiar things have happened with hockey coaches over, over the years. Um, uh, my pal Cap Raider that um, I'm going to go visit in a couple of weeks up in St. Johnsbury, he's 1-0 as a head coach in the NHL. <laughs> 
They made a firing, and they called him up and said, we need you here. Before we get the new guy in, we have to have you coach a game, and they won it. Nice. So, Undefeated. Yeah, that's right. Okay, let's talk about uh, the bubbles, the bubblers uh, before we go here. Um, uh, Jakob Forsbacher Carlson, um, for example, why didn't he make it? You know, I don't think he's very close to making it, uh, frankly. And I think that the hype for this kid, as far as his readiness, was way out ahead of what the reality is. Uh, I think he's gonna, he has the potential to be a very good player down the road, but he's not there at this point. Uh, he really needs to get in the gym and work on his body. I was at the Prospects Challenge up in Buffalo a, a month or so ago, and one uh, after one game or practice, Charlie McAvoy and JFK came out to talk to the media. The difference between the body that McAvoy has and the body that JFK has is like night and day. You know, Charlie is he's got he's put some work in uh, on that. JFK, uh, not so much. <laughs> so he really needs to. Uh, needs to, to uh, work on his body and you know you combine that with you know it's hard to find a more beautiful skater than him he's just a tremendous skater and he's got a good head for the game I think he'll be a good player down the road but give him time not ready for this no nope um, Danton Heinen a kid who looks so impressive for Denver when they were playing against Providence College in the uh, regionals at the Dunkin' Donuts Center a few years ago, uh, here he was like 170 pounds soaking wet and playing first line left wing, and they were playing the heavy game. They had the Friars on the ropes that pounding away. It's uh, only because of that hit in the middle of the game that caused the power play, and you know, and, and obviously Gillies and Net. Uh, that's really their hockey game, and Heinen was as much a part of that, establishing that, as anybody. Uh, he gets to the pro level, and you can see that he just doesn't have that uh, stride. Uh, this year it's better. This year it very well in my brain could have been him. What do you think happened there? I agree. It could have been him. But I think that uh, they watched uh, – management watched DeBrusque progress throughout last season, uh, and he really uh, – he really came on as the season went on uh, down there. He's a he's a first round pick. He's a guy that uh, you know they have an investment in having him succeed because they drafted him in the first round ahead of other guys who maybe uh, you know in hindsight uh, you know could have been a better fit. I don't know, but uh, I think it could have been either one. It happened to be. Uh, it happened to be DeBrusque this time, but I, I think Heinen, uh, Heinen, uh, you know, the progress he made through, throughout the course of last year was, uh, was was something to see too, because he had a stretch in the middle of the season when I think he had two goals in 28 games, just a just a cold cold stretch. He, his pace wasn't great. He needed, uh, you know, he needed kind of like what what a lot of the kids go through. He needed a reality check down there that the player I was in college, it's not cutting it here against playing against men all the time, and I got I to gotta do some things to get better. And to his credit, we've seen kids who are crushed by, uh, by a two goals in 28-game stretch down there, and they, they, uh, it just you know, really messes with them. 
Danton, to his credit, continued to work uh, throughout the season. And by, you know, March 1st, boy, he was, he was firing on all cylinders. He was just a very dangerous player down there. And in the playoffs, he was tremendous. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that uh, I think he'll be back up here at some point. Uh, the question is, uh, you know, under what circumstances? Will it be because he fills the net with pucks down there? Will it be because somebody up here gets hurt? We'll, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, but I, I think, uh, you know, he's uh, he's got a still has a very bright future to, to my eyes. Are there any other guys who in the long view you see as being a real part of the Boston Bruins down the road that you worry about the effect of this cut when they gave a good account of themselves in the camp and it didn't go the way they wanted? Uh, they have to make decisions, and some of these decisions uh, – made the Providence Bruins a very good team? I think they – I talked to Jay Leach about this the other day, you know, and he talked about wallowing doesn't do you any good. So he – I think his his thing is he gives them a day to uh, kind of feel sorry for themselves. And then after that, they, they got to get back at it and, uh, and, and you know, try and uh, do the things that, that you got to do to get another chance. So I – I can't see any of those guys that got sent down being, you know, really taking a backward step at this point. Uh, you know, I think Heinen was. Uh, I talked to him yesterday, and he he's ready to go. He's uh, he's got the he's got the eye of the tiger uh, again. He you know he he's determined. I don't think uh, I don't think he'll be a problem. I, I haven't talked to uh, Rob Elgari yet, but I, I don't think he. Uh, I think he sees what. As we talked about earlier, just the circumstance was uh, went against him this time, but he'll uh, he'll get a shot, and uh, you know the other guys, you know like the JFKs and and guys like that. I think this just wasn't their time, but their day is coming. Um, what, what's your take on Anton Bleed? Uh, I thought he was played a pretty spunky game when he was here. You know, they talk about sandpaper, and sometimes the Bruins have gone through stretches during this uh, reinvention period of three years where there's been very little of it. And then this guy comes in and gives you some. Um, the Yossi thing uh, got a lot of people mad at him, but it turned out Yossi hit himself with his own stick. Uh, yeah, was it a little late? Maybe on the edge of the window there, I suppose. Uh, they like the edge this kid plays with. Uh, what's your feeling on Bleed? And what's your what's your long view of him? I think he could find a niche as a fourth liner, as a, a, a you know an energy guy, a guy that disturbs things, gets under the skin of uh, of other players. He gets under the skin of his own players. He almost had a fight the other day with Connor Clifton in practice. You know, two similar type guys, edgy type guys who, you know, who kind of clashed that day. Uh, you know, uh, Anton is a, uh, you know, I, I definitely, I wouldn't close the book on him uh, by any stretch. Uh, and interestingly, in practice, he scores like no one else on the team. <laughs> but he it hasn't translated to games he, he you know he uh he's not a guy with you watch him in games and you say well you know his hands aren't that great but boy you watch him in practice he puts the puck in so if he can <laughs> if he can bring a little bit of that maybe he's nervous i don't know but if he can bring a little bit of that down the road then uh then maybe you got something 
um, people won't like this comparison, but for some reason, I'm digging back here 20 years, but he, he reminds me a tad bit of Anders Mervold. It's not the same position. Mervold was a defenseman, uh, but, but he played with like there was a volatility in his game that could have some disastrous results, but it also had an upside to it. And Bleeds, you know, is probably a obviously a better talent. So you hope that, that there's an upside for him here too. Yeah, he, uh, you know, he, you can see during the game that he, he's got something to say to everybody, even the referees. There, you know, a couple of, a couple of years ago when he was a rookie, I think Butch had to tell him, had to tell him, listen, shut up, stop talking to the refs because you're making it worse. Mm -hmm. You're not making it better. Mm -hmm. He's, he's just one of those guys. Wants to carry it on. Well, it's going to get noisy here in the garden tonight as the Bruins and Preds are going to get going here in less than two hours. So we're going to sign off. But uh, thanks very much to Mark Diver of the Providence Journal for coming on with us today. Remember to read his blog, rinksiderhodeisland.com. It's new and events his great hockey mind. So you should go there and visit and check it out. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, Mark. Thank you, Mick. Anytime. Uh, we would love to do that again. Uh, you can hear this blog, Rink Wrap the Podcast, on iTunes, uh, Google Play. Uh, you can find it uh, linked to my blog at blogs.southcoasttoday.com slash Bruins. And also when I have a story in the uh, Standard Times, you can see it at southcoasttoday.com. So uh, please join us again when we get on with another one of these. Mike Loftus from the Patriot Ledger who covers the Bruins for Gatehouse Newspapers. He's going to join me next week and later in the month, Kevin DuPont from the Boston Globe. So, so long to everybody and enjoy the opener here tonight.